Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Commonplace with novelist, memoirist, and professor Darcy Steinke. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. I had the pleasure of recording with Darcy on November 14th, 2019 at her home in Brooklyn. Darcy Steinke is the author of five novels, a memoir, Easter Everywhere, about growing up as the daughter of a minister and a former beauty queen. Darcy is co-editor with Rick Moody of the anthology Joyful Noise, The New Testament Revisited. She has taught at the New School, Columbia University School of the Arts, NYU, Princeton, and the American University of Paris. She lives with her husband, investigative journalist Mike W. Hudson, in Brooklyn. In the conversation you are about to hear, Darcy and I speak about her newest book, a genre-fluid memoir called Flash Count Diary, Menopause and the Vindication of Natural Life. Of Flash Count Diary, writer Maggie Nelson, guest of Commonplace Episode 82, said, Many days, I believe menopause is the new, if long overdue, frontier for the most compelling and necessary philosophy. Darcy Steinke is already there, blazing the way. This elegant, wise, fascinating, deeply moving book is an instant classic. I'm about to buy it for everyone I know. As is often the case, I agree with Maggie. There are hardly any books about menopause, and this is an excellent book. I have already bought several copies and deeply appreciated reading it. Darcy and I talk about hot flashes, insomnia, depression, sex, and why the disease model of menopause is inaccurate and misogynist, a form of patriarchal anxiety and control. We talk about the way Darcy, who has always written about the body and about things that are transgressive, read and wrote and whale-watched her way through her journey of menopause how fertility and creativity change, continue to deepen, and the transformative experience of shifting from the work of motherhood to the work of leadership. Perhaps you're thinking right now that you're not so interested in hearing two middle-aged women talk about a menopause memoir. Well, I'd like to try to convince you to keep listening. Menopause is not a disease not a deficit, and not just a physical process. Darcy and I do talk about some of the physical changes of the aging body, and I talk a lot more about women's health and bodies in an upcoming episode with feminist science journalist Jennifer Block. I talk about these things with Jennifer because I find it necessary and fascinating to talk about the body and health, the history of medicine, the inaccuracies and injustices of healthcare. So if that's your passion, you'll love that episode. But while Darcy and I do talk about the physical body, we talk much more about menopause as life transformation, or as Maggie Nelson put it, a philosophy. Jay Hammond, who has replaced Katie Fernelius as Commonplace's sound editor and producer, said he, a cis man, loved hearing this conversation because it helped him think about what his mother might have been experiencing when he was younger and what his partner might experience in the future. It also led him to listen to Nick Cave's new work 
and to think about physical, spiritual, and emotional transitions in his own life. After listening to this conversation, Commonplace producer Doreen Wang, a cis woman in her 30s, expressed intense gratitude for the way Darcy and I give her hope and excitement for her future. Doreen said, I feel like Rachel and Darcy are warning me about the shit that society is going to give me and then challenging it with their creations and their discourse and painting a whole new picture of what is possible. This particular commonplace conversation really buoyed me up in a very nourishing way. This episode is about menopause the way the Ann Boyer episode is about cancer, which is to say it is, and it is about so much more. This conversation is about how to write the book you need to move through a life passage about aging, about knowing when to try to fix something, and when to go toward brokenness. We talk about literary form and craft, about focusing on the staying with or connecting aspects of discursive, fragmented writing, rather than focusing on the fragmentedness. Darcy also talks about spirituality, singing, memoirs by trans authors, and gender fluidity at different phases of development. To learn more about the authors and texts we mention in this episode, please check out the show notes or visit our website, commonpodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode, and you can find out how to become a patron of Commonplace. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive Jesus Saves and Suicide Blonde, both by Darcy Steinke, courtesy of Grove Books, Flash Count Diary by Darcy Steinke, courtesy of Sarah Crichton Books, Speedboat by Renata Adler, courtesy of NYRB Books, and Trans by Juliette Jacques, courtesy of Verso Books. All Commonplace patrons will receive access to Darcy Steinke's rant assignment. Many thanks to all of you who support Commonplace as patrons and book club members. As you know, Commonplace has no ads and no corporate or institutional sponsorship. We thought about trying to get a lube company to sponsor this episode. But in the end, as always, it is you, patrons, who made this episode of Commonplace possible. The past few weeks have continued to be difficult. Panic attacks, caretaker exhaustion, sleeplessness, pain, fear of the health and well-being of loved ones and strangers. But there have been moments, and I am so grateful for them. Moments that are not exactly better or easier. But when I'm able to think of these intense experiences not as symptoms of disease, but as signs of being in the midst of a difficult but necessary transformation and being near the difficult but necessary transformations of others. Moments when Darcy's phrase, I feel more broken but on more solid ground, is enough to carry me forward. Sending love and strength and tolerance to experience brokenness to all of you. Here's Darcy Steinke. Hi, Darcy. Hi. 
Um, we're just going to jump right in. Okay, good, good. So I kind of wanted to tell you the story of how I came to your book. Okay, please. Um, because first of all, I think it reveals something important about like why I'm so excited to be talking to you today, mm -hmm. but also something about the book. So um, in January uh, of this year, I realized I was not feeling well. Mm. I was really tired. Mm. Something was wrong. Um and in February, I was like, something is really wrong. Mm. Um, and I'd been having like heavy bleeding, which mm -hmm. I thought was like, oh, this is normal perimenopausal, like heavy period stuff. Right, right. You know, 47. And um, anyway, people on the podcast have heard some of this. I've talked about it um, somewhat openly. Mm -hmm. In any case, things sort of like uh, cascaded both slowly and very suddenly mm into a hysterectomy, oh, wow. which I was not happy about, did not want, mm -hmm, was, right, you know, right. it was horrible. Yeah, yeah. So after the hysterectomy, which I had in May, um, as one does, mm -hmm. I was posting on Twitter mm -hmm. um, all sorts of, you know, frustrations with the medical system, right. with the care that I received, with the lack of research yeah, about, right, right. like, women's bodies and right, exactly. hysterectomies exactly. and, yeah, and yeah, women's yeah. health and all this stuff. Okay. And so I'm tweeting about this and also just my own experience mm -hmm. and, um, I'm tweeting about it. And then I get an email from Sarah Manguso, mm -hmm. who is a friend of mine mm -hmm. and amazing writer. She's been on yeah. commonplace and she says, I saw your tweets. I want you to know that I had a hysterectomy right. a few months ago and I, um, I, I think you would like this book. Uh -huh. And my review of the book is coming out in a few days. Right. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. So I immediately asked um, Christine LaRusso, who's uh -huh. one of the producers on Commonplace, uh -huh. to order me the book from uh -huh. the publisher. Uh -huh. And I was like, I really need to read this book. And, you know, I, at that moment in my sort of post hysterectomy recovery, so I was about maybe a month out of the hysterectomy. I had this idea. I was like, I'm only going to have people on Commonplace to talk about basically my hysterectomy because yeah, right. <laughs> this is what I need to talk about. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then a few days later, the book showed up uh -huh. and it was the first book I read um, after my hysterectomy. And I, I both like devoured it and also like really needed to read it slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, I, I mean, I cried a lot when I wow, read it. I was wow. just like, okay. So then wow. I immediately ordered three copies. Oh, I like hearing this. Yes. <laughs> for yeah. um, my friends, uh -huh. um, Aaron, Ariel, and Joan. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and Aaron's birthday was coming up. And um, this seemed like the most perfect, you know, these are all middle-aged lady friends who right. are going through some right. stuff with right. us. Right. And uh, so I, so I get an, a text from Aaron and she says, Hey, thank you so much for the book. Um, did you not get the copy I sent you? And I was <laughs> like, wait, so what? You sent, you sent me the same book? Yeah. Yeah. Your publisher did not send me Ooh. the book. Aaron had bought oh, me the so book. Funny. Oh, wow. Having seen, having read Sarah's review. Uh, interesting. Wow. What a, what an interesting, yeah. And so, Things you know, coming together. Absolutely. And yeah. then, and then of course, all of us ordered the book for other friends. Oh, I'm glad to hear this. So I think the reason that I mentioned this is because I think, in my small circle, mm -hmm. in my unscientific um, study mm -hmm. of um, the necessity of this book, it mm -hmm. seems urgently necessary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I just, it felt like an event. Mm. It felt like something that 
that uh, women I knew were really waiting for, even if we didn't always know we were waiting right. for it. Um, you know, it felt like incredibly urgent mm-hmm. um, and both like a godsend, but also like stirring the pot of like mm-hmm, realizing mm-hmm. like, wait, what the hell? Why is there nothing? Yeah, you know, we've been waiting right, for this. And, right. and, um, and then, so I want to talk about all of that. I okay, want to talk okay. about the necessity for the book. I right. want to talk about not just the content of the book, but for me as a writer, the form of the book okay, is sure. vitally, uh, mm. first of all, so pleasurable, okay. but maybe for our listeners, right. will you start right. by talking about, um, the story of your first hot flash and sure. how this book, like when and how this book okay. came to be. Okay. 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 So around 52, so I'm 57 now. So maybe five years ago, I had my first hot flash. Um, I woke in the night, just completely incandescent with heat, you know, so hot, so sweaty. And my first thought, it just seemed so not just getting hot and sweaty, but it seemed earth shaking, you know? So my first thought was like, you know, I'm a minister's daughter, so it was like, God is finally trying to contact me, you know? <laughs> and I still sort of believe that in a way. That's the thing. I think there is a spiritual side and a metaphysical side to menopause that's not talked about very much. But in the next few days, I had more hot flashes, and I, you know, really through Googling, which is what a lot of women have to do to find out, you know, menopausal information, I realized I was going through menopause. So um, I felt, you know, sleeplessness came with that, a sense of disorientation, And I sort of searched around for some models, some information. You know, I'm a writer, so I always look for books to help me move through my passages. And I really couldn't find that many books that helped me. I found there was a few medical texts that were sort of helpful. All the memoirs that I found, they all ended with um, the women taking hormones, which sort of then ended the search and the the transition of menopause, which I don't really believe is true. I don't think just just taking a drug like stops the like transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then a real catalyst actually, as I was searching was I read in the New York times, the Tuesday um, science times of the, that the two creatures that go through menopause are human women and female killer whales. I mean, now we know that, um, shortfin pilot, narwhals and beluga whales also go through menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read that in the Times, and then I also read in that same article that the post-reproductive whales around 45 or 50 become the leaders of their communities, the leaders of their families. And so that really thrilled me. So I went over and read the article in Nature uh, magazine, um, which talked about uh, the journal Nature, which talked about how this was true of whales. They had studied these whales called the Southern Residents uh, that live in Washington State. But they also sort of were figuring out that maybe in early hunter and gatherer you know, societies, um, menopause was selected in the Darwinian sense for the same reason that it was selected in killer whales, is that around 50 women got so smart and so valuable to the community for their knowledge, their knowledge of how to help people get along, their childcare knowledge, their knowledge on you know which plants are poisonous, all this kind of stuff, that it was important to have two kinds of women, um, you know, women that could have children, which is incredibly important work of, you know, the incredible, incredible work of mothering, which is so important and so hard. And then after 50 and after menopause, you know, the incredibly important work of leadership, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was an idea. That was probably the first positive idea that I was able to latch onto. So it was also the whales. The whales really pulled me into the book. You know, my fascination with them, 
Um, I got fascinated through Googling. Uh, there's a whale called Lolita that's been held mm -hmm. captive in the, you know, in the Miami Sea Aquarium for about 50 years. I flew down and saw her. And so that was the beginning. That was the very beginning. And it brought me into this whole journey of, you know, reading about hormones, thinking about my own gender, rethinking my ideas about my mother, thinking of myself as a creature, as an animal. You know, so, you know, so many things sort of became part of, of, of my like intellectual and emotional life as I moved through the book. Yeah, and, and I want to pick up on, on a, a bunch of the things you just said. So the, the title is Flash Count Diary, mm -hmm. Menopause and the Vindication of Natural Life. And I'm really interested in the title. Um, you know, obviously it's bringing up Vindication of the Rights of Woman exactly. by Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> Shall I show you that I wore this? Oh, very nice. Before we go, I got to yes. take a picture of that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I want to hear about um, the book as a treatise, you know, yeah. as a vindication. Yeah, as I, a, I think of it as a manifesto. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I really want to hear about that because mm -hmm. I think, for, and first of all, you know, it also, it is a manifesto and it also formally, I think, you know, my understanding of vindications of the rights of women, of women, mm -hmm. um, is that it was formally kind of, it combined a lot of different forms mm -hmm. um, and a lot of different kinds of styles of mm -hmm. rhetoric mm -hmm. um, and more what we might call traditionally female writing mm -hmm. with traditionally male writing, mm -hmm. which I think your book also does. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's not just, um, you know, it's genre non-conforming mm -hmm. um, right, and yeah. genre fluid right, in a lot of right, ways. Right. Um, um, but then there's also vindication of natural life. And right. I'm really interested in the word natural. I'm thinking about it both as someone who is a non-practicing doula uh -huh, um, right. and have, was involved in the birth world right, for a long right, time right. and and the way in which natural childbirth is, on the one hand, extremely polarizing mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and so and difficult to form a feminist coalition when right. you're when you're stuck in that polarizing place, right. but also I think for many women who, um, for many women the idea of natural childbirth is not about drugs or no drugs, but more about a certain kind of philosophy mm -hmm. of experience mm -hmm. and maybe thinking rethinking some of the like misogynist um yeah. and i think that's what yeah i would agree yeah. with that i mean i think that i mean i think this is a tricky question because i don't want to judge any women right. i mean choices th um, these are personal choices whether you can you know whether you get an epidural or you go on hormones you know and women are judged enough but but then having said that for myself you know i also had natural childbirth i was really lucky i had a, qu a very quick labor mm just lasted a couple hours and so I was able to do it like without drugs um and it was an amazing a powerful experience um incredibly painful um but completely transformative you know and I would say that my menopause is kind of similar like I didn't I chose not to go on hormones partly because my mother was on hormones and got breast cancer mm -hmm. you know uh and partly through my research I just sort of you felt like it wasn't the right choice for me um, but, you know, I also felt the hot flashes, I think of them as sort of like a graduate school to the next part of life, you know, mm. like I, I felt like an old sense of myself actually had to be burned off, mm. you know, I mean, like it had to be physically burned off, you know, over a couple year period, like I actually had to be forced to think about who I was, you know, as a 
you know, woman earlier who I wanted to be, what that, that, that transition was going to be painful. And it was, you know, so I learned from the body, my own body helped me to move through this transition. And by like leaning into it and sort of accepting it, you know, I got a lot out of it. I mean, I, I, like I said, I certainly wouldn't want to make anybody feel bad or say that there's only one way to do it. But for my own personal experience, I would definitely agree with you that there are certain medical models that, you know, since the rise of modern medicine, there's been a move to control women. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I just think we should just like admit that up front, you know. And so there are a lot of problems with that. But there's also a way in which modern medicine can help ease some of these, mm-hmm. you know, you know, painful things and hard times, you know. So I think I think both things are true and it's important to hold that paradox. Yeah, I mean, I think in part what you're, so, I mean, let's let's be a little specific, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, some of the symptoms of mm-hmm. menopause, which, and even the word symptoms sort of yeah, implies that menopause, disease, right, yeah, which and, is, is not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so some of the qualities or some of the experiences mm-hmm. right. that some women, many women experience right. um, with menopause are the hot flashes, disorientation, um, uh, sleeplessness, sleeplessness. There's some sexual changes for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so you talk in the book about some of the possible advantages right, yeah. of those same experiences, which right. mostly have been seen as negative. Yeah, that's right. I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I do think, you know, I mean, cycling's a drag. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, the fertile woman. Yeah. But you know, there's something really hard about cycling. You know, your hormones are up and down all over the, you know, all over the month. You know, I've struggled with depression my whole life and I feel like that hormonal up and down was really rough you know Mm -hmm. I mean now that I'm outside of that I feel so much steadier Mm -hmm. you know I feel steadier I feel yeah like I feel like I'm sort of on more solid ground it's weird I feel more broken but I also feel like I'm on more solid ground Mm. it's a combination of those two things somehow the chapter that you wrote um, about your mother, um, largely kind of at night, uh-huh. um, was so uh, helpfully destroying to me, uh-huh. um, both as a like lifelong insomniac and yeah. someone who's like, I think my insomnia has gotten worse. Uh-huh. Um, so I still have my ovaries, even yeah. though I had my uterus out. Right. So like theoretically, I'm still perimenopausal. Uh-huh. I'm not, you know, I didn't go into overnight menopause. Although that whole, you know, people know so little about what the function of the uterus and cervix actually. No, they know so little. It's I mean, ridiculous. When you go in, when you, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm not grateful for medicine because I am, you know, in scientific research, but when you actually like go in and try to figure out like what, what they know about these things and particularly the female body, I mean, they hardly know anything. Yeah. It's crazy. And so, okay, so wait, I'm going to come back to the insomnia question. Yeah. But you, on the one hand, I feel enraged, and we're going to have to come back to female rage. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel enraged that that medicine and science knows so little. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just, I feel completely let down mm-hmm. um, by, by this. Um, but you also said in this conversation with Maude Casey no one knows what a woman is, which is great. Yeah, I think that's right. Which is kind of the opposite. Yeah. Can you say more about that? 
Um, you know what? Can you say the first part of the question again? Yeah. I, can, I, I remember the Maude Casey part. But the... <laughs> yeah. So, um, because when, I think when the... you mentioned Maude, I got excited. I'm like, I love Maude. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so on the one hand, I think the fact that, that, um, science, um, knows so little about women's mm-hmm. bodies, right. um, is, is really, I mean, I mean, women are literally dying from the lack of knowledge and thoughtful research um, and understanding and misogyny misogyny, uh, around, you know, the lack of information of women's bodies. Uh Um, At the same time, you said this thing, which was no one knows what a woman is, which is great. And I feel that too. It seems like a contradiction. Well, no, I don't think it's a contradiction because I think in a way, I mean, our bodies are mysterious. I mean, I think science, in some ways, I think science is doing what they can. I also think that there's not enough, you know, there's not enough research on the female body, Mm -hmm. like on menopause. But the idea that no one knows what a woman is really comes from, you know, the incredible contribution of trans women, which I'm just thrilled about because I feel like, you know, the more we have different kinds of women, the more I as a cis woman will be less contained you know Mm -hmm. i'll be less like 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 compressed or like you know i mean like i'll have more freedom because there is more freedom in the idea of what a woman is so that really thrills me a lot that's been something that's been happening now for for a while and that was definitely a part of menopause too where i felt a sort of gender a little bit of gender switch and i look to trans people um like for inspiration in that Mm -hmm. really so yeah yeah you mentioned that you were disappointed by and large with like the cis memoirs of menopause which ended up with women taking hormone replacement therapy but that that trans memoirs were actually really helpful to you they were so inspiring because they were people going through a hormonal transformation but they and which was scary and hard and confusing but also exciting Mm -hmm. and they didn't think that the place they were going to get was this negative horrible place like they thought the place they were going to get was you know was something like a new form that was going to be exciting right and so that to me is more the model that I wanted for myself yeah you know I found that I found them to be those were the books those were some of the books that helped me the most what yeah uh, will you share some of the titles yeah the the testosterone files Mm -hmm. um that's an amazing book by is it Max Valario he's a poet Mm -hmm. he's amazing and then um uh, trans, a memoir. I can't remember who that one's by. And then there was one other that I really liked, but I read a bunch of them uh-huh. and I, I really love them. I guess I identified most with the female to male, mm-hmm. like transition. Some of the ways that he felt as he was moving, you know, from a female orientation to a male orientation and, and some of the ways he felt even before he started to transition. I really identified with those as I moved through menopause. Mm-hmm. That helped me a lot. Yeah. So yeah, and I've yeah. heard you talk about, and this is something that's that I've also um, been thinking about and experiencing, like a new kind of more androgynous mm, self yeah. or a more fluid self. Right. Like, you know, I I cut my hair short mm. um, for the first time in my mm. life, like right before I read your book, and I was uh. like, hi, this is super interesting, and like thinking about. Um, a different kind of relationship to the male gaze, right? To my heterosexuality, right, to my right. cisness, yeah, like yeah. what when one is officially 
through menopause, mm-hmm. right? And hasn't had a period for at least a year mm-hmm. right. my, and isn't cycling. My right. question is, these transitions, these changes, do you now feel static or are you still changing? Right. Well, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm still having some hot flashes, but they're not as severe. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have the panic attached to them now. And I've also kind of gotten used to it. Like mm-hmm. I've sort of, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't sleep quite as well, but I, you know, I get up a couple times at night, but I'm used to that now. These things don't seem like big, terrible things anymore. They just seem like parts of my life, you know. I guess now I do feel like I'm kind of on a plateau, but mm. I know that there will be more change. I mean, the thing about the aging body, right? Like I just went through, I had a herniated disc. I just had back surgery. Mm. So I'm in recovery from that. And I, I really see now going forward that the thing about the aging body is it's, a, it's constantly transforming. Mm. And we can think of it as decaying, which in some ways it is, but we can also just think of it as changing, you know, I mean, like I always think about the way the medical world acts like menopausal women don't have enough hormones, but nobody says like an eight-year-old girl doesn't have enough hormones. <laughs> right. You know, it's just about a life stage where you have certain amounts of hormones at certain times of life. You know, mm-hmm. it's really insane to think of it as like now we're in this diseased place where we are suffering a lack and it's all downhill from here. I mean, that's just... I mean, I also think it's a form of control. I mean, I think outside of the domestic sphere, like once we can no longer get pregnant, we're not tied to the house as much. I mean, we're more dangerous as, you know, political force, as like intellectual forces. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that the patriarch would try to demean us and debase us. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me, you know. And I don't know if I think these things happen consciously or just, it's just the way the society is. There's a lot of, there's always a lot of like anxiety around women who aren't, under the control of men, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and, and in terms of, um, some of the things that, you know, like in terms of feeling your gender shift or your gender expression, your mm-hmm. gender identity shift, right. do you feel like that is kind of in a plateau or in, huh. a, in a stable place? Or do you feel like you've entered a new yeah. phase in which flux, but not cycling right. is more of the norm? Yeah. Like, not just that you got used to... Yeah, no, I understand yeah, what you're saying. Yeah. I, I feel like, let's see, I just feel like more like my authentic self. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I've stepped away from the sexual script that I use my whole life as a fertile woman, which was centered on intercourse, I'll be mm-hmm. honest, you know. I've stepped away from that. Um, I'm lucky I have a very, like, adventuresome and lovely husband mm-hmm. um, who's willing to go with me there. Um and I just feel less gendered and just more like me. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like a body that happens to have a vagina. You know what I mean? Like I don't really feel like I need to be all femmy and like in my silk nightgowns, you know, spreading myself out in a super femmed up way. You know, I feel more just like here I am wanting to please the person I love, wanting to get pleasure from the person I love. It just seems really, but you know, in a way this seems really sexy to me. I feel like I used to think of this as like, oh God, these people, you know, the, you know, the man looks more like a woman. The woman looks more like a man. They're in their sixties or seventies. How do, how do they do it? But now I think, oh my God, wow, what a sexy phase that is. Cause mm-hmm. nobody has to pretend there's something else. Like they're just like, there doesn't have to be all this drama and all this, you know, posturing. It can just be sort of like two souls coming together. Yeah. You had a great, um, uh, interview on NPR where you're Ooh. pretty explicit about, was, yeah. about your new sex life. Yeah, I know. You know or your shifting sex yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, they interviewed me for about an hour, and of course, they they chose the ten minutes in which I talked about lube. You yeah, know what I mean? like, that was funny. Which is fine. I stand by my lube, but still, it was it was a funny to hear that. And I loved when you also said, I, all the interviews I've listened to of you are sort of like all melding together in my mind. But uh-huh. you you said that you were worried that your daughter, um, who's a young adult now right. uh, would hear that, you know, would be like, oh my God, yeah. my mom is talking about her sex life yeah. on the radio. Yeah, and just, instead she was like, yeah. yes. No, I know. decided to ask her because I tried to, like, if, if I feel like she might be mad at me or embarrassed, I'll try to make a place for that by like talking to her about it. So I asked her like, well, you know, was it weird to hear your mom, you know, talking about lube on your, you know, on national radio? And she was like, oh mom, you spoke your truth. I thought it was so moving. And I was just like, Oh my God, wow. The millennials are amazing. You know, like, um, so that just thrilled me. That really thrilled me. I I read, um, chunks of your book out loud to my 20 year old son and he was very interested. That's so great. Super interested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, so, uh, New, exciting, sexy uh-huh. um, n- uh, sex life uh-huh. possibilities, mm-hmm. which involve more communication mm-hmm. and more lube. Right. Um, and uh, the and coming back to some of like the potential openings and opportunities of these things thought of as symptoms, right? Right, right. So just like vaginal dryness is something that's actually an opportunity. Right. Insomnia, Mm -hmm. you know, also Mm -hmm. maybe an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Um, And certainly leadership. Can you talk about creativity or um, maybe ways in which the experience led you to a kind of form mm-hmm. or a kind of engagement with writing mm-hmm. that was maybe new for you yeah. that, and I'm not, and again, I'm not saying like any of these things like, okay, well then if you, if, if, if someone chooses to take hormone replacement therapy, they're not going to get all these yeah, things, yeah, but, no, I don't think that's but, true. but, yeah, but yeah. these were, you know, you chose yeah. to, to try to write a book that would help you. Uh, not just about the experience, but travel through the experience. Yeah, exactly. The book was definitely a journey. I mean, I think this book is really a continuation of my work. I've always written about the body. Mm -hmm. I've always written about things that were sort of transgressive. I've always written about, you know, the, the, the movement of the body, the changes in the body, the sensations of the body. So this book seems to come very naturally out of like my work. I don't think it's a new, I don't think like thematically it's at all new. The form, which is more broken up, you know, and more discursive and has a little more, um, I've always had a discursive style, but this is like even more so kind of came from, you know, all the incredible, you know, discursive work that's coming out now that I love so much, you know, Maggie Nelson, Sarah Manguso, um, so many people. And even before that, you know, you know, Speedboat by like Renetta Adler, like all these, I mean, I've always wanted to write a book in little chunks. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fanny Howe, who I, I love particularly her spiritual writing. Um, so I just felt like the experience, it was like form to content, you know? So I, the experience is really fragmenting, you know, like you have menopause, you know? So I'm like, well, it wouldn't make much sense to have a linear narrative then. Like what would be the sense in like saying like this you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, where that's not what I experienced. I experienced like, I think like any true, you know, people talk about a midlife crisis, but a true moment of reckoning in your life, it sort of has a eternal feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, you're thinking about your death, but you're also remembering about when you were five years old. You know, it's like a dis, it's a disjunction that includes all ages, you know, so that all these things kind of led me to this more fragmented form. And 
also to to try to get as many voices you know, not have just my voice in the book but have as many voices as possible that has to do with the hundred women I interviewed a very diverse group of women and then all the books I read about for every chapter I read about 20 books um, and tried to figure out like what I identified with what I wanted to dilate what I thought about these things you know so it it, it was like I feel in some ways because I didn't have a community, I wanted to make my own community, mm-hmm. you know, like in the book itself, because I felt so isolated and alone. I wanted to try to find uh, voices. And even if they weren't speaking about menopause, maybe they were speaking about insomnia, or maybe they were speaking about what it was like to have a difficult mother, or maybe they were speaking about what it was like to feel like an animal. And I could bring all these voices in to, you know, for sort of communal my own communal care that I wasn't getting in the you know, real world, you know. I feel like I've tried to think about the kind of writing you're talking about as like a poetics of motherhood mm-hmm. or um, a kind of motherhood writing. And that's sort of gotten me into trouble in certain ways, mm-hmm. you know, even just with myself, like mm-hmm. thinking like, is this an essentialist, you know, way right. of talking and thinking about gender and thinking right. about, you know, maternal versus not maternal experience. Right. Um, but I think that what I've been looking for is a way to describe relational writing and reading your book really helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, even, um, from this very small thing that you describe, I can't remember if you describe it in the book or in an interview, uh-huh. Where your husband says, like, well, you seem to do better when you stay yeah. with the whales. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, I know. Um, I think and- that was from an interview. But, yeah, that was what he – it was funny because when I first discovered the whales, I was so excited and I was, like, researching the whales. And I didn't know if I was going to write an article. I would tend to decide to write a book yet. But – and I remember I had a bad day, had a really bad sleep. And he, in the morning, he just came and sat by the bed and he said – when you stay with the whales, you seem to do really good. But when you go away from the whales, you don't seem to do that good. And that really made me think, wow, you know, even he notices that I sort of need this totem. I sort of need, I need Granny J2, you know, this beautiful killer whale to sort of pull me through this experience, you know. Right. And I, and I think that, that so much of this writing, like the writers that you're describing, mm-hmm. who I, who have been you know, incredibly important to me. Um, and the discursiveness and the fragmentation. Right. Um, I, I mostly see people talking about the fragmentation, mm-hmm. and that makes sense to me. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes it comes out of motherhood, the experience of like being one person and suddenly being two people right. and then being two people but like separated. Um, and I think that's true. But but um, this idea also of noticing the staying with, Uh you know, whether it's like staying with your subject matter, staying with the whales in particular, or staying with menopause, um, and continuing, um, uh, just being with, um, and I, I, I feel like somehow focusing on fragmentation rather than the relational aspect of Mm -hmm. it is as much, a, a kind of short-sighted, like mm-hmm. maybe like patriarchal critical, mm-hmm. literary critical yeah, mistake. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's really about connection. Yeah. I mean, it's about the connections. I mean, I feel like my my mind moves pretty quickly from, I mean, that's one of the, the nice things about getting older is you do, you're, you know, you've been through a lot, like life experience, and you've also read a lot of books. And so the connections you can make, I think, are are maybe for me anyway, more varied. And maybe mm-hmm. even for me, they they interest me more. 
So um, it's really about the connections between the fragments. It's not really about the fragments. Yeah. You know? And so that's something that I find, I find it really exciting when I can, because that's sort of how my mind works. And I feel like as, you know, as far as like, it's, it's best to, to try to write the way you talk and also to write the way you think. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I feel like I got those two things down the best I've ever gotten them in a book form. Yeah. You know, so I feel happy about that. I feel, and I want to keep moving in that direction. I feel like that's been, that's been really exciting. And maybe the disorientation is part of that. Yeah, I know. Well, that you don't know what's going to happen next. I think it's Uh important to keep the reader kind of like, like to keep the reader in the paradox with you. And then as you move around and expand the idea, dilate the idea, pull the idea back, you know, contrast the idea, disagree with your own self, you know, the readers there with you, you know, as you're doing those things, you know, that's kind of exciting. It's an exciting reading experience, you know, when that happens. I love the way you're using the word dilate, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So what are you working on now or, or might work on next? Um, Well, I have this interesting project actually came to me just a few days after I had my back surgery and I was still in recovery. I got a call from my British publisher telling me that the singer Nick Cave uh-huh. was going to have a show in Copenhagen sort of about his life and his work and he wondered if I would write the you know the sort of the essay for the you know like the coffee table book you know so at first I was like can I do this I'm recovering I'm still on narcotics you know I'm like but then I thought wow what an you know I've always loved Nick Cave the religious like sensibility in the work has always spoke to me so I decided to do it. So I'm near the end. I just got a draft. I have two more weeks. So I got to really work on it hard. It's due December 1st. So that's been an amazing experience to listen to all of his records, read his novels, mm. read his writing, just think about his work as a whole, um, talk to him on the phone. He's very interesting theologically, very engaged rock star, you know, very wow. theologically engaged rock star. So that's been really exciting for me. So that's what I'm doing right now. And then, then I'm going to write... Douglas Martin is a friend of mine, and his book Branwell is a wonderful mm-hmm. book about the missing Bronte brother. Actually, Branwell is coming out again from Soft Skull Press. It's being reprinted, and I'm going to write the foreword. So then that'll be the next project that's due at the end of January. And then I want to give myself a little time off, you know, mm-hmm. to like read books and go to movies and wander around the city. Because I, the little bit of time I had between my book coming out and my surgery was really spent yeah. in pain, you know, so there was a lot of pain. So. That really wasn't, I mean, it's true that I was standing watching a lot of movies on the Criterion channel, but it wasn't really pleasant, you know what I mean? I was always in pain. So I want to give myself a month or two to really um, just kind of, you know, be, you know, be in the world, walk in Prospect Park. I love Prospect Park. So walk in Prospect Park. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be teaching, of course, but because um, I always teach, but I'll be doing a little traveling. I was invited to um, to be a part of the women's, writing festival in Sydney, Australia. Cool. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. So, so it seems like, and I hope I'm not like trying, just begging you for this, um, that this is a creatively fertile time in your life with a lot of energy and a lot of, uh, yeah. Uh, independence, well, but that connection. Be, yeah, and... I mean, my argument would be that your fertility continues. Yeah, you know that it's different than it was because you're not like you can't actually have children, but your fertility can fin- you know continues in the things that you do and works of the imagination and works of empathy. You know, caring for your loved ones, for your friends, in my political resistance work. You know, with my students. You know, it's it's a very fertile time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. I sort of hate to use the word fertile because I always feel like as you age, 
Like when people want to give you a compliment, they always are saying, you look young, you look great. Mm. And I wish there was another way to say you looked good without, or you're doing well without saying that you're feeling fertile or you look young. Because like right. those things, those things are beautiful, but then those things fall away and there can still be beauty and meaning. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's hard though. The culture really hasn't figured out how to do that yet. You know? Yeah. But I, what I'm latching on to is there's something to look forward to. Oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think completely. Yeah. No, I think it's really, I mean, p- particularly my able to, my, actually my ability to concentrate huh. and to commit myself to my like imaginative work has been incredible. Like to write this last book, to write Flash Count Diary. I mean, I had to write it. I wrote it. Yeah, I sold it on a proposal, so I had to write it quickly, which I'm not used to doing. Mm. So I just rushed to my desk every day. It was so exciting. Like I read all these books. I worked on it every day. And, you know, my daughter's graduated from college now and is out of the house. So I, did, I didn't really have her to worry about. Mm. Um, you know, my husband was nice. We did a lot of takeout during that time, you know. Um, so I was able to commit myself to my work in a way that I haven't been able to do in like since she was born, 25 years, you know. Mm. So that was fantastic. That's been the that's been like one of the biggest gains actually. And then just also having more time to yourself to kind of wander around in the park and think about nothing, you know. And then also being able to be involved in other people's lives, you know, my nephews and um my dad who's aging. I love mm. having dinner with him. Mm. You know, there's there's other I mean I love my family. I love my I still see my daughter you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that she lives in New York, but just the way you can expand yourself out into other little niches of life is very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm just coming out of a, a place where my cohort has, is largely still (laughs) somewhat in the mindset of the super pressured early maternal Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And actually that's not true for us anymore, Mm -hmm. but we kind of haven't, uh, I mean, my youngest is 12 Mm because I have 20, 18 and 12. Wow. So that's that, as my friend said, poor planning. Um, (laughs) um, but I, but I do think that like, if I just think of my cohort who has the older, the older kids, you know, I think, you know, especially when they're, they're just gone to college, it's, you know, the, the, your sense of yourself in the world has not caught up to the experience that you're having. Right, right, right. right. And so what you're describing, um, is really important for me to, to know that, Uh, that at least it could exist for me. So totally. And I mean, and the problem is the culture just attaches so much shame and there's just so few, I just feel like it's debased so much life after 50 for women, you know, I mean, we're, we're shamed as like sexless crones and with nothing to do and shrill and, bitchy and just in every way we're debased but it's just not true you know mm-hmm. it's a lie yeah yeah speak it darcy yeah. <laughs> yeah. um okay so i want to yeah. go, go back to um the concept of the authentic self okay um maybe i'll start with like a super um kind of physical way of thinking about this like okay. so on the one hand you were having these hot flashes and realized that you were entering menopause and were interested in not suppressing those symptoms mm-hmm. and seeing what it would be like to mm-hmm. allow to, to like have an authentic experience right. of yourself changing and right. who you were and right. okay um on the other hand uh 
when you had a herniated disc in mm. your back, yeah. the pain, well, this was not your authentic self. It wasn't yeah. like you were like, okay, I, right. I need surgery. I yeah. need drugs. I mean, I mean, this was after, I'm not a surgery person. So after right. three months of physical therapy, every chiropractor, every acupuncturist, you know, like searching for everything, doing all my exercises, I was just like, I can't take it anymore. Right. You know, like, yeah. Right. That's and that's, happened. and that's how I felt about right. my hysterectomy. I right. was like, okay, I can, I can. I, this isn't how what I want to have happen, right. but I could bleed to death yeah. and have that authentic experience, and that would not really be the point. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I can we talk about your stutter? Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So I'm super interested in uh, the article you wrote in the New York Times mm-hmm. because I feel like that's I th- I think one thing that's quite difficult, especially when you're in the middle of an experience mm-hmm. or when it's you, and mm-hmm. it, and it, it is to figure out like, wait, what part of this is my authentic self, mm-hmm. and what part of this do I just need help with, or I right. need to change? Or they could be both too, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I think you know you you wrote about how on the one hand you did have speech therapy mm-hmm. um, for the stutter, um, and then this you you wrote um, so interestingly about this experience of being at this party with all of these stutters, um, yeah, all these stutterers yeah. who some of whom really felt that the speech therapy that you'd had was um, shaming yeah, and totally. invasive. Right. Um, and, and that it had like, uh, made it more difficult for you to, um, kind of like stay with your authentic self, which was as a stutterer. Right. I think that's right. Um, and you talk really beautifully about like some of the, um, ways in which, um, stuttering opens up a space of empathy and connection Mm, between you and your students, you and, and listeners at an audience. Right. Um, on the other hand, um, I can also understand why your mother might have said, like, okay, well, I want you to be able to to speak f- right. as fluently of as course. possible in the world. She saw how frustrated I was, I think, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's a really interesting one that comes back to the question of, like, natural, mm-hmm. right? Like, right. what what do – how do you know? How right. do you know when to say – yeah, this is not who I right, am or right, I, right. I, I'm going to try this intervention right. or. Well, I mean, one thing, I mean, just as far as what's just happened with my back, I mean, I think, and also, I mean, when you know, I mean, childbirth pain, it, it lasts a few days at the most, right? Like if you have a long labor, her, uh, you know, herniated disc, like the pain was not something that I could really handle. You know, yep. it was like, it, if I had known it had, had a limit, I would have maybe been able to handle, but there didn't seem to be any limit. Mm-hmm. So that's something to think about. Like if there's if there's pain that seems to be, or the hot flashes. Like I knew that I wouldn't be having the, like that level of hot flashes for for thirty years. Uh-huh. I knew. I mean, a few years seemed like a lot, and up to ten years seemed like a lot. But I also knew that the, that it had a point of diminishment. So that to me is a big thing to think about. Like mm-hmm. you're not going into this chronic place. You're going into like you're going through a phase rather than like, you know, sort of settling into a chronic place. There's that. But then I also think, um, I don't know, it's hard to know. I mean, with my stutter, you know, my mother was very, she was loving, but she also, you know, really had a lot of ideas that I was going to like, you know, marry a lawyer and have like a rich lady's life and, you know, like the kind of life that she had wanted for herself. And so that included, you know, a, a you know, speech perfection, you know. So it wasn't so much, that was the part that I resented more mm. than, you know. And the speech therapy itself, you know, I, I, don't, I felt bad a little bit in that article because a lot of my speech therapists, those and ones I had before, were quite, were quite 
kind and loving. It was their orientation to the problem that like was kind of gave me the wrong idea. I mean, I know now some people do have speech therapy to cure their stutters, but a lot of people have speech therapy to stutter more like comfortably hmm. and to get used to sort of the, I mean, the, the fascinating thing about stuttering is, you know, I, I really only do it now when I read out loud and sometimes when I'm tired or when I'm nervous too, I do it. But, um, but it makes this sort of atmospheric disturbance. Mm-hmm. That's really kind of fascinating. You know, it's a really interesting space and it may, it can make people really uncomfortable, but you know, if we got used to it more, if everybody got used to it more, I mean, is it like, why should we all speak like newscasters? You know, it just makes <laughs> right. no sense. You know, it's like, why can't we get used to it? I mean, it's true with any like disability rights kind of thing. You know, why can't we, why can't we work on ourselves to mm-hmm. make these things, you know, to make, to change the idea of what's normal and what people feel okay with, you know? So that was something, I mean, I definitely feel like my stutter is something that, um, it, it has more gains than losses. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it really helped me. I don't, I just don't think I'd be a writer otherwise. Yeah. I think it, the way it made me obsessed with language, I mean, really deeply obsessed with sound, the way it turned me into an interior being since there was a lot of anger and shame, but all those things helped me become the person I am now and, 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 and turned me to my imagination and to the writing life. I've always wanted to teach a class, but I can't quite figure out how to structure it. Basically, on uh, there would be like half workshop, half writing workshop, and half reading. And the sort of underlying principle would be that most writers or many writers uh, or many artists are writing into their place of difference. Yeah, it'd be, um, it'd be interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. like, I say for, I, I teach visual arts, I teach visual arts, studio arts students at like NYU and they often will have learning disabilities or mm-hmm. visual intricacies or whatever that you can tell have moved them into visual arts, which is interesting too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and trying to, to sort of present to a student, like, what is your, what is your place of like greatest eccentricity or, yeah, exactly. or most atypicalness or, or brokenness or absolutely. Like, what's the point? Like I always think, you know, the, I still, you know, i I'm back and forth with some of the ideas in my faith, but the cross is one I always like because I love the Simone Veil idea of the cross where the two, you know, where the two boards sort of hit each other. That's like where you should be because that's the static in your life. That's the paradox Mm. in your life. I mean, that's the thing that's actually, that conflict is the thing that will actually attach you to the divine and to, and to the internal is, you know, the actual conflict, Um, you know. That's something that I think is is really true. Yeah, and it's so different from the way that we're often sort of think of education or art as like identifying the thing that you're best at. Yeah, perfection. And then like good do at that and you're then get better and better at it. You're a genius. Yeah, right. You're, you become a genius because you're so great and perfect. Right. It just isn't, I don't mean, I just don't believe that, you know. Well, I also don't know that it leads to very interesting or accessible writing. Yeah. And I, by accessible, I don't mean, I, I mean like that you can enter into it. Right, right, right. You can yeah. find yourself there. That there's room. Yeah. That there's really room for you to yeah. move around. Yeah. Well, um, you can tell. I mean, it sounds like you teach, so you can tell when you teach students when they're attached to their. I think of it as their like I call it their like organic subject matter. You can yeah. tell when they're getting attached to that and the energy that's released and how excited they are to be there. And you know, I mean, there are different ways to try to release that. Like, you know, as I work with my my studio art students, it's hard because a lot of them are afraid of writing. You know. Mm. But I really work to, sh- to try to get those little spots where writing 
can move more freely. Like, the, like this just last week, we did rants. Hmm. I think a rant is a spot that language moves into very organically. So wait, what, what was the assignment? I'm so oh, Well, we read an artistic manifesto by a Japanese artist, and um, then they could read the write a manifesto like, or a rant. So the idea was that you were going to... And one of them wrote about... Um, how she's not she's from nashville and how like new yorkers just stop like when they get off the train and just <laughs> and look at their phones and they're like you know for a few moments they're like zombies you know it's really funny <laughs> and then another student wrote about um in the building where we have the bathroom lights are all on timers uh-huh 10 second timers so you're sitting on the on the, and they're obviously time for men uh-huh and you're sitting out in the bathroom and the the light goes on like goes off in 10 seconds and so you're literally sitting there in the dark and you have to wave your arm to get it going <laughs> So that was funny. And then there was, there were other things too. There was a, oh, there was a couple that wrote about crits they had gotten on their art in college that they had thought were unfair, which this reminded me of in some ways how I started to write. Cause there was a, I remember, you know, when I lived in one neighborhood in Philadelphia, there was a bully and he would really tease me about my stutter. And I remember later like going through notebooks and finding all these ways that I had, you know, was trying to stand up to him, like in writing. Mm Mm-hmm you know, what I should have said to him or what I would say to him next time. And those things were the very beginnings of my writing, actually. When I was little, 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 like, you know, second and third grade, you know. Yeah. So we work on that a lot. I think there are little, I think there are little spots where writing can flow through in ways. I think you can help students find that and then hope then that that will open up to some bigger projects or some, some things on different subjects, you know. Um, do you want to read something from the book? Sure. Awesome. You know, I might stutter, so be, so be prepared. Awesome. I've come out of my mother's body three times. Once when I was born, once in adolescence, a baby woman breaking out of the maternal crust. And when she died, I came out of final time. The times before this time, though I was outside, I was also partly inside her. But now that she's dead, I've come out completely. This is why, just after she died, I felt so exposed as if for the first time I was abandoned under the huge dome of sky, unprotected. Now that I'm finally out, I'm trying to see her and also to consume her. I can't be inside her anymore. Now I must work to get her inside me. Yeah. And you you have this ex- expression, and did, is this like a thing that you made up, or is this like... That to make something dead into food. Is I think that, I made it up. I yeah. mean, I don't know. Maybe it's referenced somewhere, but like, I, I think. I, I yeah. just, so. I mean, it's very like communion Christian-y. I mean, my, my religious background, you know, my dad's a Lutheran minister. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the communion is supposed to be, you know, a metaphor for the, it's, well, it's supposed to be the body of Christ, but, you know, a metaphor for the body of Christ, you know. And so you're using so that's very that, I mean, that's pretty well known metaphor. Right? Okay. Like, yeah. 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 Right. I mean, I it's it's not in my background, right, so maybe that's right. part of why I was I like, understand. wait, what is happening here? Yeah. But to me, um, uh, I I was like, oh my god, that this this image um, and this idea of like what's happening uh, in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. what's happening when we go over um, these kind of uh, archetypal primary relationships, right. um, and these traumas and mm. these old connections, mm-hmm. um, and separations, um, the idea of like, you know, uh, 
instead of thinking the, of these as like neuroses or dangerous obsessions mm-hmm. or, you know, why can't you just move on? Yeah. Um, but thinking about making something dead into food right. and that that might be part of what the, you know, being awake in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. having had a hot flash, maybe being feeling um, closer to the divine or, um, you know, out of your body and in more in your body than ever. Um, and the opportunity to do that, um, just struck me as like, yeah, something I I hadn't thought of before. That was the thing. I mean, the hot flashes of course had their spiritual qualities, but the insomnia had a lot of spiritual qualities too, for me, like being up late at night, thinking about the expanse of my life, thinking of course about my relationship with my mother, which I ended up doing a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. I had a very formidable mother. So we, we, we still, I mean, I'm happy to report that our relationship is better than ever. <laughs> She's been gone for about six years uh-huh. and, and the relationship goes on for sure, you know. But and thinking sometimes about thinking about the life unlived, the life I could have had, the things I'd done wrong, but also the things I'd done right and the joy and the pleasure that I had in my mm-hmm. life. I mean, I started to really, it was a real reckoning of like really kind of realizing like, for better or worse, this is my life. I won't be 25 again. I won't be 35 again. And like just the value of the life that I've lived, like it's valuable because it's mine. Mm -hmm. It's my life, you know? And that was something that I really hadn't felt before. I felt like I'd sort of been in the stream of life and didn't really, hadn't really paused to think about all this, but that was really helpful to me, you know? And and it doesn't sound like your mother ever got to a place where she was able to have that same feeling about her life. No, like, it was she had a very. Yeah. It was hard. The hard thing about my mother is was her unhappiness. Mm-hmm. You know, I think mean, I think Frank Bajard has that line like, "What their what what your parents give you are their lives." Mm. And I find that to be like a heavy burden sometimes. You know. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. So, but I keep as time goes on, I keep. Change, you know, as the world changes and I change, my relationship to her changes, to my memories of her, and also to her spiritual manifestation. I mean, I think one of the gifts of death is that a lot of the thorns fall off and you can sort of just feel the love. You know, you know that there was love, even though there was tremendous difficulties and you know there was also anxiety and paradox and, and animosity even. Mm-hmm. But there's a way in which love sort of transcends that. Mm-hmm. It's a very beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, I feel happy and grateful that you were up in the middle of the night thinking <laughs> about your mother, writing about your mother, mm-hmm. uh, kind of getting in touch with these questions of shame and anger yeah. and um, and joy mm-hmm. and pleasure mm-hmm. and happiness and um in ways that I, that I just really haven't seen explored and before. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that. Yeah. There's a way that sometimes mother daughter stuff, and it's kind of like women's health. It's kind of debased, right? Mm -hmm. And made like sentimental, it's like sentimentalized and kind of debased. Like somehow war is a serious subject, but, but mother daughter relationship is not a serious subject. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, it's frustrating, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but but they but these are very serious things. I mean that I mean in my work have been able to stand up to a lot of study and thought and sinking into and thinking about and exist, you know, existing in like bearing witness to you know, these are things that I've have given me a lot of you know, I don't know, maybe you could even just those overused word but maybe you could just say healing you mm-hmm. know so yeah 
Yeah. Can you, I mean, do you have anything that's coming to mind when you think about, cause like you didn't, you, you did have uh, love, but you didn't have a model mm-hmm. of the kind of woman yeah, that's true. Um, or the kind of mother that you wanted to be and that you've right. become. Right. So how did you, um, without that model in your mother kind of come, you know, and I, and I think no matter, obviously women have all kinds of different relationships with their mothers, right. uh, but even women, I would say by and large who have positive relationships with right. their mother, there's so little conversation yeah. about this stage of life right? So true. that you're yeah. kind of, I, I don't know anyone who feels that they had a model yeah, for I know. this. It's so true. Every, I think, I don't think there's maybe one out of the hundred women or nearly a hundred women I interviewed said that her mother had had a frank and helpful talk with her. Mm-hmm. One out of a hundred. Yeah. I mean, that is really, I just think there was so much shame about it in the earlier actually generation that there was a disconnect. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we can really work on. We can talk to our, our, our daughters and our sons. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be normalized. Like if it could be taught in school along with puberty, menstruation, childbirth, menopause, just yeah. totally normalized, you know? Not that those other things are properly taught in school either. No, totally. <laughs> but like, let's throw it in there and try, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, those are things. And not as a disease. Yeah, not as a disease. Yeah. Just total, total no, normal life cycle stuff. Let's just lay it out there like that. Yeah. You know, and, and then, like, and, and like, oh, we, there's an opportunity to become the wise woman leader. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, when I was taught about, I mean, it was in the 70s and it was terrible, but I was taught about menstruation. Like, there's a lot of shame. There was, I should be ashamed if someone knew I was menstruating and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but there was also, a feeling in these, these like goofy films that there was going to be a lot of excitement and joy mm-hmm. too, you know. So we could do the same thing with menopause. We could be like, it's difficult. There are hard things, but there's a lot of excitement and joy in that too. I mean, I could be taught in the exact same way. I feel like, you know? yeah, yeah. All right. So everything's so hunky dory, fantastic, wonderful. Uh-huh. What did you leave out of the book, or uh-huh. or or what has what what do you think? I mean, it's not that you don't put the complexity in right, there, that it's right. very much there, but what, what's the shadow or yeah. that, that you feel right. like is the thing that you still really have not come to terms with right. or that, that you were like, you know what? Too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some things came up like the, the things that you, you know, like I have a daughter and that's great. I would maybe like to have more children. And I think at midlife when you really, I mean, possibly, you know, for sure, that's not going to happen. Mm. You know, that was a certain reckoning, you know, some of the things that I wasn't able to do, that was a reckoning, but it forces you to move toward coming to terms with it. I mean, stuff that was sort of invisibly shadowing you like unconsciously, you have to yeah. think, okay, this is a reality now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes though, I, I do have desire and I just adore my husband, but I sometimes do miss those days. Like, you know, in your twenties when like you just stay in bed all day and drink wine and have sex, you know I mean? Some of that, the ferocity of sexual desire. Sometimes I have, I miss that sometimes I think, Oh, that was, I mean, I haven't had that for a long time, but I sometimes think, Oh wow, that was amazing. Like mm-hmm. what a, to be in that sort of sexual haze, you know, and to have desire really motivate almost everything you do like sexual desire. I wouldn't want to go back there, but I sometimes think of it fondly, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, to think that, you know, your time on this earth is limited, you know, I mean, I, I may, if I'm lucky, I might have 35 more years, you know, so that's, that's something that's sobering, right? That's not always easy. And to know that those years there's joy and there's interesting stuff in the new phases and there may be some, you know, imaginative intellectual freedom, but there's going to, my body is no doubt about it. My body will break down, you know, like, like I plan to stay as healthy as possible, but 
there will be some things that limit me. There will be some challenges. I mean, that's not that fun to think about, but better to think about it and start getting used to it and think of it not as a catastrophe, but as, as a sort of, again, a natural phase of life, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's to me is important. I always remember I have a friend that's a nun and I was, you know, she's an Episcopal um, nun, Sister Leslie. And uh, I, like I write about her a lot in my book, I'm Easter Everywhere. And I remember at one point she was telling me there was a nun there that was sick and was going to die. And she was saying, but that nun, you know, she still hasn't forgiven these people. She does this, 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 this. Mm. And I, I was sort of both cheered that there was a nun that was like dying that still had all these spiritual, you know, problems, you know. But also I could tell that Sister Leslie really wanted to help her get there, you know, to get to a place of peace before she died. So that was something that really like has stuck with me that that there's like that you're you never stop being a pilgrim. Mm. You never stop being a seeker. You always can, you know, try to be more empathetic, try to realize your privilege more, try to expand yourself more, try to be less um, judgmental. You know, there's all those things that you you can continue to try to work on, you know, mm. Um so there's that. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a, it's a real sense of like, I mean, I just don't think the strategy of like st- trying to stay the same mm-hmm. is just like a very good strategy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I understand why some people do it, but I just don't ultimately think that it really can work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think going with the reality, no matter how grim and negative it is, is better than... Um, than trying to fight it, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And it gets super complicated, you know? Like yeah. I think about my son um, struggling with depression and, yeah, it's hard. you know, wanting, you know, recognizing like, okay, well, you know, not trying to close off to experiences, um, but also at a certain point, like, yeah, this is just not tolerable. Right. Like, it, you know, this is not who he is. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, and yeah. that's so interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. How much of life is actually in between. It's like, you yeah. know. How- no, I think about that a lot too. I mean, I've, I've like struggled with depression my whole life. I've been on and off like antidepressants. And before my back, I was off for about 15 years and I was able to manage it like with exercise and all this stuff. But once the pain started up, I really felt myself like starting to circle the drain. So I jumped back on again. And I hope after I stay with myself I can jump back off again but mm-hmm. um but I feel like I'm learning I can I'm starting to know myself well enough where I know the difference yeah you know I know the difference between you know a good couple melancholy days that are productive in a weird way yep you know or thinking about the world which does have a lot of problems it needs a lot of help mm-hmm. versus really like when the depression has sunk into me and my world view is changing in a way that isn't really uh, reflective of my soul and my mind. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's when I feel like I need to jump back on. And I would always do that. I feel like they've, it's been very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not against them at all. I feel like if I can be off them, I want to be off them. Mm-hmm. But if I have to be on them, I'm willing to be on them. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, I feel very strongly about that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that um, your spiritual life is important to you. And mm-hmm. as you said, your father is a, was a Lutheran minister. Do you have a spiritual practice or mm-hmm. a religious affiliation mm-hmm. right now? I mean, now I'm, I'm, I mean, my work is, is my main spiritual mm-hmm. practice is my writing. I always remember, you know, again, the nun that I was talking about, Sister Leslie, like used to say to me, 
I used to talk about my prayer life or my meditation life and my writing life. And she would say, Darcy, these are the same exact things. Why do you always have to you know, split them up? You know? huh. So I do feel like the three or four or five hours I'd spend a day writing, uh, is, you know, is my main spiritual practice. I do meditate mm-hmm. sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, when I was in pain, it was hard. So I'm trying now to get back to like a half hour in the morning. I'm not in the going to church phase right now. Uh, or, I mean, I've been a little bit thinking, oh, should I try? You know, there's a Buddhist, there's a Buddhist um, monastery in like Carroll Gardens. I've thought about like going to some of their like meditation. I'm more there sort of now at the moment. Mm. I mean, I, I go back and forth. I feel drawn sometimes. I feel in some ways it's been helpful to me to sort of like finally be like, okay, the thing you're looking for is not in church. You know, you mm-hmm. can find it in books, in conversations, in talking on the phone to Nick Cave about God. You know, like you're going to be able to find it in lots of ways and you shouldn't have to worry about that, you know. But, you know, I was I grew up in the church, you know, I grew up like singing. I miss singing a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I sometimes think, like, should I join a choir or should I just go to church and sing some hymns? You know, I really think singing is good for you. So that's one of the few places like in the world that you can sing. I mean, there's karaoke, but I like to sing with other people. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, um, that's something I miss. And I sometimes do miss like the liturgy, you know, the mm-hmm. rituals, you know, I cause I came up in the church, like, like my first memories are like crawling around, like underneath the pews or mm-hmm. sitting, you know, seeing my dad up in the, in the pulpit preaching. And so I sometimes do long for that. My interest in faith is an ever changing thing. My theology is changing all the time. My book really moved me toward like pantheism kind of, and mm-hmm. toward the, the natural world, the animal world. My current work on the cave project has kind of convinced me, you know, he talks about Jesus a lot, talks about like biblical imagery a lot. And it's kind of reminding me that like, I don't really need to make a choice. Mm. I can have all of this. You know, I can have nature. I can have pantheism. I can also think about Jesus if I want. You know what I mean? I can read the Psalms. You know, I'm very interested in the Psalms, you know. And I feel like that example of like from one line to the next, everything is terrible and then everything is like great and then everything is terrible and everything is great has really informed my writing uh-huh. and I, I find that to be probably one of the, my, my biggest influences and very valuable so I don't want to throw that out completely sure so I'm still sort of like I, I never really get settled I always feel like theolo- I mean theologically I'm always changing I'm always reading things I'm always having different ideas I mean I guess if ever if anything I sort of feel like now the movement of my own mind is mm. my is this like the imagination is God? Yeah, you know what I mean. The creative force is God. I mean, that's where I would be right now. I would say. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are what is a question that uh, you think that nobody asks you about this book or about your writing life or about your life either because they're too dumb or too shy or mm. too you know, yeah. uh, Ill, ill-informed right? that you wish, like, why didn't you t- I don't ask me this? Huh. I'm not trying to get you to do my work for me. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I feel... I don't... I... Hmm. I think... I mean, when I think about my own writing life, something I'm really proud of that doesn't get talked about is just... You know, I grew up in this little ranch house in Virginia, Roanoke, mm-hmm. Virginia, and went to public school. And I can remember I wrote my senior term paper on like Sylvia Plath, and the teacher had never heard of her. Hmm. And that's not to say anything bad about the teacher because I'm sure she knew a lot of other things and 
she had done a great job on the place of Shakespeare, you know, but, but just how different my life is now, you know, how, mm. how I move in a world that's like just the world I always wanted for myself, a world of, of the imagination of knowing people who are interested in ideas, a world that's very open, you know, I don't know. I feel very proud of that. I feel very proud that I was able to imagine a life for myself and then move my slowly, incrementally move myself toward that life. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. I feel very, I feel very proud. That's the thing I'm the most proud of. I mean, I'm very proud of being a good mother and a good wife and a good, you know, family member and community member, but like, Mm -hmm. that's something I'm really proud of. How do you remember how you came upon Sylvia Plath? At that, at that age? Well, I was lucky that my dad, both my parents were very smart. My mom was going to college when I was in high school, so there mm. was some of that. And then my dad was a big reader, and he did write poetry himself, and he read poetry. And I don't know if it was through him, or I don't really know exactly how it was, but there was always lots of really good books around the house, and he would give me books, and we would talk about it. And, and so there was ways in which... And my mother also, she wasn't quite as big a reader, but she was very interested in the arts. Hmm you know, in, in trying to get us, I mean, I remember we took classes at the fine arts center and she really like wanted us to be good. She wanted us to have that, you know, that outlet and know about that world. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky in that way. Um, even though that wouldn't be, that wasn't the norm and the people I knew or like the neighborhood or anything like that, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, there was a lot of, there was really a lot of depression when I grew up, like in the seventies, like the sixties had happened, you know, people had lost, you know, some people had lost their kids in the Vietnam War. There was such incredible social disorientation mm-hmm. that I have a lot of memories of moms just basically sleeping all day on Valium and just being really sad. I mean, there was a lot of just sadness, a lot of divorce. So it was a hard time. I have a lot of sympathy for it. I mean, I, I the hardness of that time, which I think connects in a way to what we're seeing now with some of the Trump followers, actually, mm-hmm. like the depression and the hardship and the struggle, which I got to see firsthand. But I also got to see some of the scary parts firsthand, too. Mm. You know, the drunken dads making racial like remarks. And I saw both sides of it, you know. Yeah. So it was tough. But, um, but just the fact that I've been able to have a life that includes, I mean, I always felt like one of the best things about me, which I think kind of comes to, has to do with being a minister's daughter is I'm very comfortable around a wide variety of people. Mm. I mean, I can be around people of different social classes, different, you know, ethnicities, and I just feel, I feel very comfortable. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I remember we used to visit the sick, which often was, you know, pretty intense, you know, or bring turkeys to people that were really poor, you know, and then also you would have to have dinner with the wealthiest member of the congregation's family and jump on, you know, jump on their trampoline in their like yard. And so like, just that always seemed to me like a sort of exciting and engaged model for life. Mm. You know, maybe I don't have as quite as much like variation as I'd like in like some of those areas now, but I do have a fair amount of, a, you know, I do have a lot of variety in my life as far as the people and the ideas and the people, the ideas, the passions, you know, my husband's an investigative reporter. So that brings a lot of interesting people, you know, investigative reporters are very passionate. So that brings a lot of interesting people into our lives and the stories that they're doing, you know, their engagement in the stories, these, you know, stories that are usually centered on social justice, you Mm -hmm. know, very amazing 
very moving, you know, so I feel just so grateful, really, really grateful. Yeah. Mm. Um, you're, ma- you're making me ha- think about um, my grandmother um, who was, my mother was super problematic. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I've written a whole book about that. Uh, um, is it one of the books you gave me? No, I oh, should have given okay. you. I yeah, you should have. It's, it's called Mothers. I'll, oh, wow. I'll send it to please you. Please do. Please do. Um, but, uh, you know, she was really doing the best that she could. Mm-hmm. Um, and her mother was really um, very brutal and blaming mm, and, and hard. Yeah. But I was thinking about um, that one of the things that my grandmother I mean, my, you know, my grandmother was very poor, mm-hmm. uh, as was my grandfather. They uh, were first generation, uh, Newark, New Jersey, um, and then like, you know, sort of kept moving to these like slightly more affluent suburbs mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And um, and, I, and my mother like really was an artist who was like being really trapped and contained, mm-hmm. you know, by Sounds her hard. parents. Yeah. But they loved music. Mm, that's great. And my grandmother loved, um, uh, she always had public radio on mm, right, and yeah. like was really, and it's yeah. just so interesting, these small yeah, things exactly. that like, yeah, I would never say like my, my grandmother really, you know, gave my mother what she needed and then my mother really gave me no, what she needed. Yeah, and yeah, yet yeah. these things, you yeah, know, that, exactly. that are, that kind um, of, that, yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. In like trying to do the best they can, these ideas, the beauty that they were drawn to yep. can have an, can have a strong influence on you. Like even if like in other ways you don't feel like you were that cared for. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was kind of undermothered, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I also do see my mother as really having a hard time and in some ways doing the best she could, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any, any questions for me? I don't think so. You don't think so. Um, I really appreciate you coming to my house and reading the book and reading it with such like passion and engagement. It really means a lot to me. I mean, that's what's meant the most to me in this book is my like individual, like the I mean, when the book first came out, I had like, a, like dozens of women like writing to me like every week, like yeah. on my email. Now it's, I mean, now I get a couple a week and mm-hmm. I get people on my social media as well, but just the enthusiasm, the incredible enthusiasm for the book and the, and just the honesty, mm-hmm. it's been really moving to me to hear, to, to have these exchanges with women and to hear them talk about their own lives. It's been really rich. I have to say that's been one of the, well, I'd say maybe, I would maybe say the best part of my writing life so far, mm. like the most rewarding thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, besides the, just my love of sitting at my desk, you know, but the idea of hearing from like individual women directly. So this has been part of that. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, you really opened the door uh-huh. and then it's, and it's, it's pretty clear that, you know, you, you know, within reason yeah. that you're interested in knowing who's coming through. Yes. I want to hear and why yeah. and, and how there's gonna be and a lot of people coming through. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Sure. Darcy. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 83 of Commonplace with Darcy Steinke. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was sound edited by Jay Hammond and produced by me, Jay Hammond, Doreen Wang, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Grove Books, Sarah Crichton Books, NYRB Books, and Verso Books. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible and to all of you who send us encouraging messages, especially Eleanor Smagorinsky from Australia. 
The music you're hearing was composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker-Gorin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>